Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Euros with Football Social Daily. Hello, welcome to Football Social Daily, the podcast keeping you up to speed with all the goings-on at Euro 2020 and in the Premier League. England are in the European Championship final, but amongst the jubilation, UEFA have charged the three Lions due to supporter misconduct. We'll discuss that on today's show, as well as the man who, even when he's not around, people can't help but talk about. Jose Mourinho is the new Roma manager, but in his first press conference, he's been talking about life in the Premier League and how a disaster for him is considered success for everyone else. Is the special one still special? And will we see the former Chelsea, Manchester United and Spurs boss in the Premier League again? Also, we dive into the latest top flight transfer gossip with news on Liverpool, Manchester City and Chelsea. My name's Niall and joining me today on Football Social Daily, Boyle Sports, Leon Blanche. How are you doing, Leon? I'm doing great, Niall. Yeah, looking forward to um, a good weekend. Um, I suppose it's the final that a lot of us were hoping for when the kind of when we knew which side of the draw England would be on and which side of the draw the Italians uh, have been on. So really looking forward to this final on Sunday night. You just said that you've uh, dropped your little girl off to, to GAA. You're not going to be roped into watching any football or hurling on the day of the final, are you, I hope? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, listen, it's it's GAA, it's hurling, it's football. In this house, we'll, we'll have, uh, it'll be sport all day. We might even throw in a bit of horse racing as well. So yeah, look. Sport all the way up until about 10 o'clock or maybe it'll be about 11 o'clock. I have a feeling this could be a long final. <laughs> you'll have the Euros on the TV and you'll have the hurling on the iPad. That sounds like what's going to be going on in the Blanche household. We've also got Callum Tyler back with us. How's things, Callum? Yeah, good. Thank you. Just stocking up on uh, pasta and San Pellegrino and, and all the things <laughs> I need for Sunday. <laughs> I don't mind people eating Italian food. Just make sure you put some pineapple on it to add insult to injury. Anything we can do to annoy the Italians. There, Snap the spaghetti. Do what you can. <laughs> there was a, gr- a great chant at Hamden during a Scotland-Italy game uh, that kind of was a bit infamous where Scottish fans started singing, we're going to deep fry your pizza <laughs> to the Italians. You probably have to pay 50 quid for it at Wembley knowing the price. Is there. Uh, anyway, let's get stuck into what we're going to be talking about on today's Football Social Daily. And it does relate to the Euro 2020 final, at least to one half of it. England, of course, reached the final by beating Denmark two goals to one after extra time earlier this week. It was a brilliant spectacle, a great moment for all three Lions fans. But there were a few things that cropped up after the game which have generated some interesting talking points. In the last 24 hours, England have been charged by UEFA for a number of things. 
You may have noticed on the TV coverage, or at least it was pointed out after the game, that during the Harry Kane penalty, which was saved by Kasper Schmeichel, the Denmark goalkeeper, and then Kane tucked home the rebound, a green laser pointer was waved in Kasper Schmeichel's face during Harry Kane's penalty. After the game, obviously in the jubilation of England reaching a first major final for 55 years, fans were setting off fireworks outside of Wembley. And as we've seen numerous times from England fans throughout this Euros, the national anthem of Denmark was booed by a section of Three Lions supporters. Some rather unsavoury behaviour, unacceptable behaviour. Let's start with the laser being pointed at Kasper Schmeichel during Harry Kane's penalty. Not something I noticed whilst the game was going on, Callum, and it was only pointed out by TV pictures after the game, as I say. That is not the sort of behaviour we want to see at football stadiums. I know everyone's excited to get back in the ground, but I mean, that's so dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's almost like all the other things that you kind of mentioned there, the sort of the fireworks and the booing is is kind of the expected level of sort of behaviour that, that kind of almost adds to the atmosphere. But this the laser beam pointed at one of the players was slightly more sinister, um, not least for the fact that although it's unlikely given the distance, like these things can, if they just hit the wrong part of the eye, they can cause blindness, either temporary or a bit more permanent than that. And it's just, yeah, there's, there's, there's just something particularly sinister about it. And, and although it does happen in football, it's not something that, that you know we like to think happens in our football. England certainly don't mm. like to think that it happens here and, and, and are very much, you know, we're all about fair play and, and that's something that, that we kind of pride ourselves on. So, it, yeah, it, it, it was not nice to see. But I, I th- kind of think that the other, the other stuff um, kind of comes with the territory a bit more than this. This sticks out as something that, that wasn't very nice. Yeah, there's no doubt the excitement was running high. So fans setting fireworks off, that is a little bit dangerous, but it seemed to be controlled enough from the footage I've seen. The booing of the national anthem is slightly unsavoury. I think we've seen it far too often and people do think it makes their skin crawl a little bit because it is all about respect uh you know these players are wearing respect armbands and everything like that and yet the fans are booing and i know it adds to the atmosphere but that laser being pointed at schmeichel i mean it could have have blinded him in a in a some certain situations leon i mean it's it's behavior we don't want to see at football matches do you think it's just excitable england fans because there's no excuses for it in my opinion no i think it's moronic um behavior um, I think it's absolutely outrageous that you would stoop to such low levels of trying to put a goalkeeper off because that's why they've done it. Make no mistake about this. They've tried to put Kasper Schmeichel off before the penalty. They've tried to gain an unfair advantage, but let alone that, they've put someone's health at risk. So it's absolutely moronic. And hopefully the perpetrators um, will be found and they will be brought before whatever punishment um, is deemed necessary because we cannot have this in football. I, I I, mean, I get so annoyed too when I hear people boo a national anthem. It just, there's no call for it. There's no need for it. We need to show respect to everyone's national anthem. Um, it's quite a poignant moment when you're lining up and you're playing for your country. Um, the Italians sing that song with pride. They will belt it out on Sunday. And you know something? If they get booed, it might just have the totally um, wrong effect from an English perspective that if they feel that it's them against 60,000, which it will be, they're already a very tight-knit group. We saw the celebrations for Spinozola when they won the semi-final. It was done for him. They don't need any more inspiration. But if the English fans want to boo the Italian national anthem on Sunday, they might just live to regret that. 
It's a great point, and I know this is a football podcast, but if you just bring it to Rugby Union for a second, Callum, you know, the All Blacks are famed for the hacker that they do. And, you know, some of the objections to the hacker from teams over the years, whether that's been players smiling in the opposition or we've seen players turning their backs or standing in strange formations, um, that seems to rile the All Blacks up. So I think Leon's definitely got a point there. Um it, the Italians don't need any more inspiration to perform, do they? No, and and I, I can't imagine. Although the Italians will be very proud, I can't imagine them them really taking uh, taking too great offence to that. They certainly won't take it to heart. Um, I, the the booing of the the anthem thing is disrespectful. I think it's an odd one though because, well, Scotland and Ireland would those fans would certainly boo "God Save the Queen." And I know there's like historical significance attached to that, and and maybe other reasons why. But it's yeah, I. I don't know why England fans have decided to start doing it. I don't think it was always a thing. And it, it seems like it's a new thing that they're doing. And, and it's just a bit, it's a bit kind of that sort of classic leery, kind of laddish, loutish in your face thing. And, and you compare it to Rugby Union there and it does it does football no favours. Um, I'm, I'm a staunch defender of football fans. I think they're, they are generally kind of looked down upon by the rest of polite society, particularly rugby fans um, and, and sort of policed as such. But yeah, sometimes they just don't really do themselves uh, any favours in that regard. Indeed, yeah. Every country's got its idiots in the fan base, but England fans always seem to get caught up in this stuff. Um, there is a bit of a reputation there amongst England fans, Leon, and this Euros really it should be a chance for them. I know emotions are running high, England in the first final since 1966, but you know, this is a chance for England fans to to almost kind of redeem themselves, I suppose, because there are plenty of people who don't want England to win and understandably why, because there's this perception of arrogance amongst several different fan bases around Europe and this obnoxiousness of England fans. So I certainly think that Italy would be the neutral's choice on Sunday in the Euros final. Yeah, I mean, I think they probably will be. Um, In terms of England, look, there has been a bit of a history, but I do feel that the majority, as Callum has said there, the majority of English fans are good, um, honest people who want to go cheer on their national side and do it with a lot of pride. And the atmosphere that they have created at the games at Wembley has been brilliant. It has been absolutely fantastic. So there's always that small minority who will spoil it for the majority. And I think even looking at Garrett Southgate and what he's done, I mean, I absolutely think he's a credit to everything associated with with the English FA. He just comes across as such a likeable person. Um, Everything about him is class. And the way he's brought this group of players together, there's no... Before with England squads, you always knew that there was kind of little pockets of players who would dislike other pockets of players. That's nothing. There's none of that now with Gareth. They're a real... To me, they look like a club side because they've actually they're all pulling in the same direction and that stems from him and his coaching staff and and all the good things that he's trying to do you listen to his pre-game his post-game interviews it just screams class and that's helped in terms of neutrals warming to england because of their manager but certainly when you see incidents like this and particularly the laser that's i mean that is just so uncalled for there's no need for that in any sporting arena let alone in a European uh, Championship semi-final just before a penalty is about to be taken. It's just, it's really wrong. It really is wrong. Obviously, as, as you know, uh, Celts, the, the, the two of us, uh, me and Leon, we're probably used to, you know, everyone else sort of going, oh, anyone but England and, and really not rooting for this England team. 
and you know people are still obviously saying things about the fans and the media and and some of it is kind of quite rightly but a lot of people i know in scotland are it's it's really hard to to dislike the actual england players or staff or manager um you've kind of mentioned southgate there early on even if you look through the players you, you've kind of got almost everybody there has had a has had a point to prove at some point in their career they've been they've been overlooked they've been um they've had to like overcome certain things and, and get back to their peak john stones luke shaw raheem sterling um and then you've got other players in that team as well who have sort of come out and stood for things and 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 use their voice and their platform to talk about how they do want us to behave and, and what values they actually do hold. And it's it's kind of remarkable to see, given given the sort of state of things in terms of politics and 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 sort of discourse at home, how well this England team sort of carry themselves and and the point they want to make. And it is really really hard, as much as I'd like to to begrudge them any success, um, just from the point of view of the players and the manager. Yeah, Gareth Southgate has led from the front absolutely brilliantly. England have been charged by UEFA for the laser that was pointed at Schmeichel during Kane's penalty. Also for fans setting fireworks off in close proximity to Wembley Stadium outside the ground and booing the Danish national anthem. What those charges will entail from UEFA, we'll have to wait and see. Just on the notion of kind of this team of players and Gareth Southgate being likeable. I remember once not long ago, Leon, Rio Ferdinand was talking about that golden generation, as it's referred to, of England players with the likes of himself and Beckham, you know, and Lampard and Gerrard and Rooney, etc, etc. And one of the reasons he suggested that things didn't really click for that group of players at that time was because of the competitiveness within their club sides. Rio Ferdinand and Frank Lampard were supposedly best mates in their West Ham days and then Frank Lampard went off to Chelsea and Ferdinand went off to Leeds and then Manchester United and they didn't really speak to each other in the same way after that because they were both vying for domestic honours. Lampard successful at Chelsea, Ferdinand also successful at Manchester United. And Ferdinand was sort of suggesting, Leon, that there were almost pockets uh, and cliques within the England squad when they linked up for international tournaments. There doesn't seem to be any of that now. Uh, and regardless of whether sides are at each other's throats, regardless of whether Saka plays for Arsenal and Kane plays for Tottenham, there doesn't seem to be any of that rivalry or dispute between players because of the clubs they play for. That's all been left at the door as soon as they've got to the camp. And perhaps that's a reason as to why they've been so successful. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think that comes from, it has to come from your leader. And that's down to Gareth Selkade and his and his coaching staff because they've been there now for quite a number of years. He's worked his way up through the youth system um, with England. Then he took on the senior role. And I'm sure if any player came in to a squad or a camp under this current management setup and tried to create that click or, or, or that separate pod, they'd be shown the door. It's as simple as that. Gareth Southgate, the players know through Harry Kane, what an example he is as a captain as well. Everything is in line and it's set up perfectly that there's never going to be a break in the armour. There's never going to be a chink in the armour. Even look at Jack Grealish. A lot of players, if you get come on as a sub, then to be subbed off, yes, he wasn't happy. But you could see he understood. You could see Southgate having a chat with him as soon as he came off and that's the measure of the man look i want to shut this game out i'm sorry it was either you or phil Foden who was coming off phil had just come on you came on around the 65th minute mark we need to shut up shop here and the way he can close out that game even though the danes were down a man they kept the football 
in previous years gone by, they wouldn't have been able to do that. And this is the this is how far England have come as a team and as a squad in terms of a semi-final of a championship. They're trying to get to their first ever Euros final, their first final since 1966. And they were calm. They kept the ball. Even when they went 1-0 down against the Danes, they didn't panic. You could see Southgate telling them to calm down as soon as they went 1-0 down. People were questioning this side. What would happen if they went behind in the game? Would they be able to do it? Well, they proved in the semi-final. Yes, it was a fortuitous penalty. I've seen them given. I've seen them not given. But on the overall basis of the game, England were the better side. And even hearing what Ferdinand is kind of talking about, I don't think maybe they had the leadership within the playing um, panel to actually get above club rivalries. And they certainly didn't have, I don't feel, the proper leadership on the sideline. So you've got to give a lot of credit to Selkate and his team. And you've also get a lo- give a lot of credit to the players themselves because they've been able to step above rivalries. You've seen it across the back four. You've got two Man City players playing alongside two Man United players. You've got players all over the pitch who have club rivalries, but when they pull on that national jersey under this regime, they only want one thing, and that's their country to win. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was telling what Steve Holland and Gareth Southgate were talking about in terms of the players that haven't even featured. Players like Connor Cody and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who's barely had any game time. Ben Chilwell, who's a Champions League winner, hasn't really been able to get on the pitch because of the form of Luke Shaw. These are all players that aren't going to get game time, even the goalkeepers as well. I mean, but they're all playing their part behind the scenes. And you saw the celebrations when England got through the semi-final. It was a whole squad that came together dancing on the pitch there. There was no one who looked glum because they haven't played any games. Certainly feels like a real team spirit and team effort there, which has stood England in good stead. So the Euros final is on Sunday, England against Italy. And just like throughout the whole Euros, Boyle Sports have been doing a brilliant offer. It's a £10 no-lose bet and it continues for the final on Sunday. Bet £10 on any market and if that bet loses, you'll have the money refunded into your account in the form of a free bet. You can check out the latest odds on boilsports.com and the Boyle Sports betting app. Don't forget it's 18 plus T's and C's apply. Bet responsibly. BeGambleAware.org. Time for a quick break now, but afterwards we'll be talking about a bit of a legend of the Premier League, but someone who's bowed the division farewell recently, Jose Mourinho. We'll do it next here on Football Social Daily. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, even if he's not in the Premier League, he still makes top billing uh, when it comes to Premier League news. Jose Mourinho, sacked by Tottenham some 10, 11 weeks ago now, since been replaced by Nuno Espirito Santo at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. He's taken over at Roma and he's held his first press conference this week. But despite the fact he's back in Serie A for the first time in 11 years, he couldn't help but talk about the Premier League. Jose Mourinho and the Premier League forever linked together. In his first Roma press conference, he's been defending his Premier League record. He was asked a question about how he feels about his time in the Premier League, particularly in recent seasons, Callum. And he came out fighting. He said, a disaster for me is success for others. He was referring to the fact he won a couple of trophies at Manchester United and was sacked, got Tottenham to a cup final and was sacked before he could take them out onto the pitch at Wembley. Um, is Is he right, do you think? Do you think that he's got a point when he says a disaster for me is considered success for others? I think he definitely has a point. And I think he definitely has a point when you look at the sort of the way those two clubs are managed and the atmosphere there and the type of players that are there and the ownership that are there. And I think, I, I, I mean, I think neither of them were probably quite the right fit for Mourinho. Um, 
so I think he does have a point that that he did very well there, given the resources and given the politics that he had to work under. That said, I also think that that Jose, whilst he's an all-time great, whilst he's still you know a box office draw as this press conference proves, you know, and he's won twenty-five trophies in his career, and and Guardiola actually only recently overtook him. Um, I, I do think there is a, an argument to say that football has moved on slightly. We you know we talk about that set of England players. Um, there's a few of them in there. Thinking of Shaw and Rashford. Uh, in particular, that that Mourinho did not did not rate and did not get on with, and was not able to get the best out of. Um, and I was looking into this. I was, I was trying to see, you know, what what has changed in Mourinho. And and in his own words, he's kind of said that that modern day players. He said this while he was at Man United. He said modern day players don't have the resilience of the players at the clubs where he made his name. So he's obviously talking about the likes of you know Lampard and Carvalho at Chelsea, Zanetti, Materazzi at Inter. And he's I, I don't think he sees the same. He calls it resilience. I don't think he sees the same toughness in players like Luke Shaw, Jesse Lingard, all, all the players that he kind of had issues with when he was at United. But then you do have to wonder why he hasn't changed with the sport if that's a, if that's a sea change. I think, you know, football, if you stay in it long enough, it, it will eventually change and you, you've got to change with it if you're going to stay at the top. I think that's a key takeaway. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Leon, because there's no doubting Jose Mourinho's success and his ability. You know, if you look at it on face value, yes, he did win two trophies at Manchester United. Yes, he did get Tottenham to a final. But there's almost more to management now, isn't there, than simply getting the job done. It's almost like what we were talking about, Gareth Southgate, earlier on in the podcast. You almost need to be a likeable character and do it in a certain way. Do you think that there is an argument for football having left Mourinho behind? I think in terms of how you've got to deal with the modern day professional, um, I don't think Jose fully gets that or wants to get it. Um, I think Jose still believes that his way, and look, we're not going to sit here and try and um, (laughs) critique a manager who's won it all. Um, But I do believe that he's he's got to let up a little bit some of the way that he's conducted himself with certain players, as Callum has mentioned, a couple there. But right down throughout his career, there's always been certain players that he just doesn't get along with for whatever reason. Maybe it's a bit of both sides, you know, player and manager. But, I, you know, with Jose, you know, he's going into Roma now and those players will look at what he's done before and they will give him the benefit of the doubt. But then it's how... It's how it goes along now over the next... The first year is normally always very good for Jose because he's in there. The players are right up for it because of his record as a manager. They're running through brick walls for him. But then it's when it kind of starts to go off the rails a little bit, then the cracks almost seem to appear from out of nowhere. So they get papered over in the first kind of year lately. But then when it goes into his second season you hear about stuff that happened even in that first season. So it's going to be very interesting to watch it happen. Do I think he's going to be at Roma for a long time? No. Do I think he'll be successful there? Probably. But he's just got to try and learn. The players aren't as, and I want to be fair to players here because they're in a totally different world than they were 15, 20 years ago. Social media, everything else that comes along with it. But they're probably not as kind of, able to take a you know a criticism or a slagging or you know or being told you need to do this you need to do that they're probably a little bit more delicate than that some of them not all of them so i do think you've got to be able to put your arm around certain players i think there was a very good um 
I can't remember which piece it was, but there was a certain manager. Actually, it was in GAA. If I can use this just for a moment. It was a GAA game last weekend and there was two players off the same team. But the manager put his arm around one and he actually went for the other one. You could see him screaming at him. So I think Mourinho, if he wants to come back to people kind of saying, this guy's got it all, he's got to learn how to do that. Different characters require different treatment. But I don't think Jose has been able to actually identify that. I think he goes with his way or it's the highway. Yeah, I mean, they used to call him Mr. Motivator, didn't they, back in his early Chelsea days? And my next question I've got here was, has he truly lost his touch? And then I think back to the video of him arriving at the airport in Rome and the reception he got as he was leaning out of the car window, Callum, and there were hundreds upon hundreds of Roma <laughs> fans cheering, waving scarves. I mean, that that's almost a superstar touchdown. I mean, you wouldn't even see that at a Premier League club welcoming Jose Mourinho. I mean, I, I was going to ask, is he still the special one? Because for me, what made Jose Mourinho so successful was not only his skills in management, but also the sort of aura that he carried with him. And I think that that has kind of faded away over the years. Um, the best managers always tend to have this something else. I mean, you think of Sir Alex Ferguson, it was, you know, he, he's got the hairdryer, you don't want to get on the wrong side of him. You know, his man management skills are exceptional. Pep Guardiola's got this intensity and he's got this aura about him. I feel that Mourinho might have lost that touch of special, which made him the character that he was. No doubt he's still a brilliant manager, I'm sure of it. But is he still the special one for you? I think he might be for Roma. I think Roma is actually almost the perfect conditions for Mourinho um, to, to sort of thrive again. There's a lot of similarities to Roma now as there was Chelsea when, when he went in, in, what was it, 2004, 2005. Um, They've they recently been taken over. There's, there's rich new owners there. Um, it's, a, it's a club that's immensely well supported, hugely historic, but has, has also kind of underachieved, especially in the last sort of 10, 15 years. There's a real craving to sort of get them back to, to where they believe they should be. Um, I, I also think that, you know, whilst a lot of that stuff could apply to Spurs, he doesn't have to work under a, a, a difficult character as, as Daniel Levy. Um, and then you look at the, the, the playing squad with Roma and this is a, you know, anyone that's, that's watched any sort of European football in the last 10 years will be familiar with a few Roma players because they sort of have the likes of Totti and De Rossi, these players that stay forever. They're both, they're both moved on. This is very much a new look Roma team. There's a lot of talented players there's young players coming through. They've got that Spinazzola player as well. It's been a kind of revelation at this tournament. It, it seems to be set up for Mourinho to come in and, and do what he did at Chelsea. There's, there's not too many huge egos or, or the politics there will be very different to what it was at Spurs and United. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. I think, I think there's a huge opportunity for him to, to really make history there. Yeah, I think I'm in tune with you there when you say that about him at Roma. But in terms of the Premier League, Leon, do you think that's it now? for Jose Mourinho in English football. Do you think we'll see him in the Premier League again some point down the line? Oh, God. Um, it's hard to see where he would go, I suppose. It is. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to see where he would go. Um, look, he's been now, I mean, three massive clubs. Um, I don't think we're going to see him back in the Premier League, although... He's still got a house in London. And as we see him, Rafa Benitez, he kept his house on Merseyside and now he's managing Everton. So, look, you never know in football, Niall, but I probably think he has, he's done his time in the Premier League. Um, it's not to say he won't be asked back by one or two clubs, 
But if you really look at the big jobs, which is what he wants, um, I don't ever see him being in charge of Liverpool or Manchester City. Um, I, you know, I can't see him going back to Chelsea or Manchester United. Certainly won't be going back to Spurs. So it kind of eliminates a lot of the clubs that he would be interested in going back to. So I think probably his time is up in the Premier League. I think maybe after Roma, maybe there's another club job, but then I think he'll definitely manage uh, his national side. And I'm actually, I'm actually fascinated to see Mourinho manage his country because I actually feel what we've talked about now and kind of looking up back at his career, I think an international job would be absolutely perfect for Jose because he only gets the players in at a certain time. I think he would actually, I think he would really... <laughs> There's not enough time it. for him to alienate them all. No, <laughs> no, no. You know what? I think he would actually, I mean, he'd excel because I think having them at such a short space of time, getting them ready for a one-off or, you know, one game or two games in a window. Mourinho is the master at getting a side ready for one game. He really is, and he's proven that all throughout his career. He can really get players revved up to their max for one or maybe two, maybe it's a two-legged Champions League game or whatever it may be. I think international football will definitely see Jose, and he's going to be Portuguese manager sooner rather than later, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Leon. I'm really excited to see how he gets on on the international stage, if that is ever to be the case. I hope it is, because it will certainly be a fascinating contrast between his club style and his international style. It just makes me think back to what I think it was Roy Hodgson said once, that he missed the day-to-day of club management. It's the busyness, the bustle, whereas in international management, obviously, it's a little bit more laid back because you're waiting months and months to get a group of players together, and then you do the hard work. Anyway, Jose Mourinho has been speaking in his first Roma press conference but still couldn't keep his mouth closed about the Premier League. We'll keep a close eye on how he does on Football Social Daily. We've got some transfer gossip coming up for you next on the podcast. We'll do it after this. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Don't forget to hit subscribe and that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast. Again, just a few days left of the Euros, the final on Sunday. I'm sure we'll be looking back on whatever happens between England and Italy on Monday's show as well. And the Premier League season is fast approaching, which means the transfer window is open and clubs are keeping their options open as to who they might want to bring into their playing squad. Let's start with a club close to your heart, Leon. Liverpool, a report suggesting that Liverpool are chasing Adama Traore, the Wolves winger. Would he be a good fit at Anfield, do you think? What sort of players and signings do Liverpool actually need this summer? Yeah, look, I mean, Adama was, he was being mentioned um, last summer as well for Liverpool. Um, I'm not too sure whether he's the player Liverpool require. I do believe we need another attack-minded individual to come in to the squad. Um, For me, he doesn't score enough. I know he was quite prolific in the season before last with his assists for El Jimenez. They did strike up a very strong partnership at Wolves, but Liverpool don't play that type of way. We don't get a lot of crosses um, as in trying to hit a target man in the box. Yes, we do get people down the wing and maybe if he can get that into his game, but I'm just wondering, does he score enough? Um, The players that I was kind of hoping, I thought Kingsley Coleman, would be a really intriguing one um, if Liverpool were to go for him. Um, obviously, playing with Bayern Munich, he's quite young. Um, he looks to have that bit of unpredictability about him. I know he's got two years left on that contract with Bayern, 
but I would have favoured someone like him over a Traore. Um, Traore can frustrate you at times. There's no doubt he does possess quite a lot of skill, but I just wonder would he fit exactly into Liverpool's style of play. Another player that has done quite well at the Euros was Renato Sanchez. He was another player who had been linked to kind of Liverpool, I think it was last summer or maybe even the summer before that. He's young. He fits FSG's profile of buying a young player that hopefully has the potential to improve. He's still only 23. I think we spoke about him a lot on the podcast. He's a player that has really impressed me after a disastrous loan spell with Swansea. He's rebuilt his career um, with Lille. Um, so I think he could be someone. And the other player who I was very interested to see that we were being kind of linked to was the Atletico Madrid player. Um, Sel, uh, I'm not, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, Niguez, Niguez or um, however you say it, but he's a player that I think could fit in. I think Liverpool have to try and replace Jorginho Wijnaldum. I think they do need someone in the middle of the park. They've signed a centre-back and they need someone up front. I think they're the three areas and the three players. Liverpool are not going to spend huge amounts of money. I do think they'll sign two more players, one attack-minded and one central midfield player. Traore, I don't know whether he's the one for me. Yeah, it might just be paper talk that, but you're right, Leon. He has been linked with a move to Anfield last summer and I think even in the January before that. So there's certainly been some sort of links with Wolves, uh, Adama Traore and Liverpool over the years. Interesting you mentioned Saul Nugeth as well because he's been linked with Manchester City, who you support, Callum. Um, And from a City perspective... Reports in various papers suggest that Gabriel Jesus has been linked with a move to Juventus. And this mainly stems from your former player, Danilo, who is a Juventus player, claiming that he'd love to play with Gabriel Jesus at Juventus. Well, I'm sure they're mates and he would say that. So that might be where that link comes from. But considering the lack of game time, even if that's... I'm not even sure if that's fair to say last season for Jesus, but certainly... Pep played most of the season, didn't he, without a recognised striker, uh, at least in, in large chunks of the campaign. So does this surprise you in any way that he's been linked with a move away? It doesn't surprise me. Um, the Manchester Evening News today has a story about, um, well, they're sort of suggesting that Man City might might be quite willing to let him go. They would sanction that move um, if, if it kind of became official. Um, and then I've also read that all of this is dependent on on whether Ronaldo signs a new deal because obviously he's taken up the vast majority of that wage bill. Um, Jesus is a weird one. He's only 24. Um, he has scored a lot of goals and sort of almost by any other, in any other league for any other club, he would be heralded as sort of one of the best around. And it's yet, despite all that, and I kind of want to defend him and, and he's a likeable guy. There's, there's still... There is question marks at City and a lot of City fans have this around him. You know, He doesn't seem to score a lot of goals in big games, whether he always gets the chance in big games, you could argue either way. Um, but I do think ha- having burst on the scene, he's, he's been a, there a couple of years now, I do think his development has kind of stalled. I don't think he's getting, I don't think he's becoming the Aguero player. I don't think he's becoming as intelligent um, or as kind of tricky or as cunning as, as Aguero is. And I, I just, I, I wonder if, if for his sake, potentially maybe a move might be the catalyst to sort of you know push on we've seen it with so many players they they just they make the right move at the right time and then all of a sudden they they step up a level but you know it's it's no failure from Jesus he's scored so many goals but there's still yeah. this question mark over him he's 24 years old now and it's always going to be difficult to step out of that shadow of Sergio Aguero 50 Premier League goals in 131 Premier League games for Manchester City that's a decent record and any other striker yeah. in the league you'd be talking about 
you know, how good they are. I think that record was even better until the start of last season. I think it was close to one in two, but obviously he's had a few games and not scored throughout the course of the season. Is the timing of this one quite surprising or not, Leon? Because now Aguero's gone, you think that that would be the perfect time for Jesus to step out of the shadows and take that mantle on for himself and be the main man up front for Manchester City. But it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Should he end up leaving the Etihad and going to Juventus, which is where he's been linked? Yeah, look, I mean, it is a bit surprising. And then I heard um, Pep talking about that um, in terms of a striker that clubs are looking for outrageous amounts of money and saying we couldn't afford one. Now, I said for a minute, leave me alone, will you, Pep? You couldn't afford one. You can go out and buy any type of player you want to for any amount of money that you want to. But maybe he is making a point in terms of that they're not going to be held to ransom in terms of paying a crazy amount of money for, say, Harry Kane, um, because it's just it's not the value that they put on the player. I mean, one player I think is going to really excel at Man City who might take over the mantle is Ferran Torres. I've been really, really impressed with that young kid for Spain in this summer's tournament. He has come on leaps and bounds game by game. And he's just got so much about him. He's a very intelligent player. And back to Callum's point in terms of the intelligence of Aguero always being able to find that little yard of space in tight pockets. I think Torres could be the one to actually take on the mantle more so than Jesus. And it's unfortunate for Jesus He has got a decent record with Man City, but let's be real here as well with the amount of chances that City create for any striker, you should be scoring at least one and two. And obviously, if you're not getting game time, well, that's a different thing. But if you're starting enough games, you should be at least one and two with Man City. But for me, I think Ferran Torres has got a bigger future in the game than Gabriel Jesus. Talking of strikers, let's move on from Manchester City and now to Chelsea whose Olivier Giroud signed a contract extension with the club last month for an extra year. But the Daily Mail are reporting today that he's close to signing a two-year deal with AC Milan in Serie A. Is this the right move for him, do you think, Callum? Because all the other reports claim that Chelsea are looking for a striker. Erling Haaland's actually quite high on their priorities list. They've got Timo Werner at the moment who hasn't quite fired on all cylinders. But we know just how important Olivier Giroud is can be I mean he's almost been used as an impact sub but he's a very very good player and I think somewhat underappreciated I would even go as far to say as one of the most underrated strikers that we've seen in the Premier League in the last decade Um, he signed a new deal with Chelsea which led many people to think that he's staying at Stamford Bridge but he could be close to signing a two-year deal with AC Milan was that contract extension with Chelsea just so the Blues can guarantee they get a bit of cash for him was it inevitable that Giroud was going to leave this summer don't know if it was inevitable. I think um, I think you're totally right when you say he's underrated. I, I had the word in my notes written down as misunderstood. I think people just don't see what Giroud offers, and and yet you know he he does score some amazing goals, and he's he's just maybe not the sort of all action kind of box to box forward that we're kind of used to. But and I think I think at AC Milan he might find a a team and a league and a style of play that that suits him a bit more, and and. Yeah, he's 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 constantly got this this Havertz and and Werner thing, and and he's never going to be first choice while they're there because they spent so much money on them. Um, I think it'd be a good move for him personally. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's, it would be a bit of a loss to the Premier League. Not that not that many Premier League fans might think that. Um, but yeah, he's he's a he's a really underrated player, and I I, I loved some of the goals that, that he's been scoring. 
What about you, Leon? What are your thoughts on Olivier Giroud? Because obviously, disappointment for him with France at the Euros this summer. His French record is excellent as well. And since he's been at Chelsea, he's not exactly been first choice. It was kind of a toss-up between him and Tammy Abraham when Frank Lampard was manager. And then Timo Werner came in and almost displaced him there. Understandably, um, his agent has been talking for a while about his need to play regularly or at least more regularly than he is at Chelsea. That was mainly so he could guarantee himself a place in the Euro squad. That's been and gone now. But with the World Cup 18 months away and Giroud now in his 30s and not getting any younger, do you think a switch to AC Milan, which is what's being reported in the Daily Mail, is a good way to go? Um, You know, I think the reason why Giroud is still playing international football in a funny way, is that he hasn't been playing week in, week out for the last number of years, so his body is still fairly fit. I mean, he's going to be 35 in September. So by the time the World Cup comes along, he'll be, I mean, he'll have touched 36. But his record with France, if you want a guy to come off the bench for 15 or 20 minutes in the hope that he might get a goal, I think Giroud is your man in terms of an international player. Going to AC Milan... It's probably just to get a two-year deal because that's probably going to be his club career nearly over. He's not going to get much time, I think, under Thomas Tuchel with Chelsea. So there's no point really in signing a year when you're not going to get any football. If Milan want him and they've offered him two years, certainly for this first season, I think Giroud will get a lot of game time. So he's got the opportunity to stay around the French squad. There's no doubt that Deschamps is a big believer in him, but I just think Karim Benzema is a better option. And I think Benzema kind of proved Deschamps right over the kind of course of the Euros. But Giroud is underrated. I agree with both of you guys. He's a very good professional. He gets his head down. He gets the job done. And for someone who will be coming on 35 in September, you've got to give him credit for his fitness levels. He's very rarely injured. He always puts in a serious shift when he's picked. And I think AC Milan, if they're talking about something like 1.7 million quid sterling, that is a bargain. You're going to get a player who will do quite well. I think he'll hit the ground running in Italy. He's a great target man. He'll suit the Italian league. And I think AC Milan will be the big winner out of that deal for sure. Milan, you're right to mention his age there. Milan are brilliant with kind of players in that twilight of their career. I think they really do manage to get a good couple of years out of them that they might not get elsewhere. You think about, you know, Beckham, Zlatan, there's been loads down the years, but I think that's almost Brazilian like the, Ronaldo. Yeah. Don't forget him. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. almost the, the perfect way to end your career is just rocking up in Milan and, and living the life. But yeah, I think he'll do really well there. And as you say, practically 35 at the start of the season. So a two-year deal would take him till just on the cusp of 20, uh, 37. So, you know, that's mm. that's a good deal to be offered, yeah. isn't it? In your mid-30s, a two-year deal. And look, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with going to Milan for two years. <laughs> Beautiful city. I mean, a big football club, though, with a huge history. I mean, he could become a god there in terms of him going into that side and trying to get AC Milan back on top. But the one thing about Giroud is he will score goals. And I mean, in Serie A, I wouldn't be surprised if Giroud was hitting 15 to 20 in his first season. I really wouldn't. He already looks like a Roman sculpture anyway. So it seems like (laughs) a a good thing to send him over to Italy. That's it for the transfer gossip. And that's it for today's Football Social Daily. Thank you very much, Callum. Thank you very much, Leon. The Euros final is fast approaching. We'll have more chat on that two days away uh, now. And we'll be back on Monday with a, a review show looking back at that famous day at Wembley. Will it be success for England or will it be the Italians who come out on top? That's it for today's Football Social Daily. We'll catch you again next time.